Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Class Unity Transmissions. It's been a while since we've put out an episode. Uh, we have, however, a backlog of some great stuff we're going to be releasing to you over the next couple of weeks, so be on the lookout for that. To, uh, to get us started today, to get us launched, uh, before we jump into this great interview that we have lined up uh, with you, it's going to be me and Steph K interviewing Armand about an article from late last year on the Class Unity website entitled Gay Particularity Reconsidered, uh, where we talk about the uh, comparative advantages of articulating um, a struggle for gay rights based on a class-based and material-based politics as opposed to identity-based politics. Uh, before we get into that today, we're going to go to my co-presenter for this episode, Jamal from Class Unity Chicago. How are you doing today, Jamal? Pretty good, man. How are you doing? Not too bad and not, not too bad at all. Uh, I know you've been keeping your eye on some of the uh, class struggle going on in France this week and last week. Um, just thought I might uh, have you on today to talk a little bit about that before we jump into today's interview. Yeah, sure. So I think what's going on in France right now um, is should be of great interest to um, leftists in the United States and around the world because it's kind of the first mass mobilization um, uh, of of its of its character that this isn't just a sort of mobilization around an individual, um, you know, sector of the economy. Like in Britain, we're we're seeing railroad strikes and and so forth. And um, in the United States, periodically we see you know Black Lives Matter, or whatever. But in France, we're seeing a genuine mobilization of the entire economy right the entire something like a class. general strike would you say or is right. that too it's too not uh... quite a general strike but it could become one mm -hmm. um and that's actually sort of th that's a that's a live issue of debate right now because okay. um the unions have been hesitant so just to set the stage a little bit uh what's going on in france is that the president emmanuel macron who's a very standard neoliberal um <laughs> Perhaps the the first um, standard issue neoliberal that France has elected, um, because historically both the French left and the French right have been a little bit, a little bit less neoliberal, you could say, than in the other major developed countries. Um, the the neoliberal turn uh, occurred in France a bit later than in other countries, um, and it did not really hit particularly the right as strong as it did the right in the United States, the UK, um, et cetera. The French right still to this day has a sort of uh, a, a social, called a social Gaullist internal faction or component um, that is not quite as enamored of deregulation, you know, free trade, deindustrialization as the neoliberal right has been elsewhere. Um, and so Macron's particularity is that he comes from the center left originally. He he was originally minister of finance under the socialist president François Hollande, um, who was elected and immediately became the least popular president France has ever seen. I think right. he left office with like an eight percent approval rating um, because he tried to sort of push through these these neoliberal reforms. Um, and Macron was somehow, via a variety of of sort of some some dumb luck on his part, 
the collapse of the genuine left, um, clever branding, and the fact that France uses a two-round electoral system. So, mm-hmm. of course, yeah, because he was in runoffs with the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen, mm. uh, he's been able to win re-election, um, and he's been able to win a sizable. He had a majority in parliament. Now he doesn't have a majority anymore, but he has just barely enough to kind of govern um, in parliament. Uh, due to kind of artifacts of the electoral system. So France doesn't use proportional representation like most of Europe. So Macron's party is significantly overrepresented, particularly because there has been this tendency to um, for everyone to call for uh, solidarity block voting a- against the far right, right? Like, and this, this would is... now fold in like Mélenchon and people like that, right? Right. So the the French left has, which is which is today represented by primarily by the France Insoumise, unbowed France party, which Jean Luc Mélenchon, the the sort of standard bearer for the left um, in the last two presidential races, founded. Um, <laughs> The French left has been calling in the second round, not just for the presidential race, but also um, in in parliamentary races Mm -hmm. um, to to vote effectively against Le Pen, against the far right. And I think we're seeing that that was probably a a mistake because um, now because Macron is, is in power and has this kind of just workable, you know, bare parliamentary majority right. in coalition with the center-right party, the Republicans, uh, he's been able to force through this pension reform that's overwhelmingly unpopular. Like the the polling that I've seen shows like <laughs> 75, 80% of the population opposes it. That's um, and when you, when you look at uh, the working population, so the, the sector of the population that's most supportive, still not actually supportive, but most supportive, um, it are people who are already retired because for obvious reasons, they don't have to worry about this reform. But, but um, if you look at actually the working population, it, it's like 90% um, oppose it. Um, and he's trying to force this through. Um, uh, he, 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 di- he wasn't able to, to get a majority in parliament to actually vote on this. So he used a, a kind of strange um, Gaullist, um feature of the French constitution, um, which was basically, if, if people aren't aware, the, the current constitution of the French Fifth Republic um, was tailor-made for General de Gaulle. Um, and basically, the long and short of it is that the Communist Party, under proportional representation after World War II, was too powerful in France for the capitalist class. And so um, there was a revised constitution um, and it introduced the it got got rid of proportional representation. It introduced the two round system and it gave a lot of powers to the French president that um, not even the American president has. Right. The power to um, pass laws via this mechanism um, that he's used to pass this law basically without a vote of parliament. Um, and the only way for parliament to actually um, to have a vote is uh, a vote to uh, a vote of no confidence in the government after this sort of mechanism is used. And the vote of no confidence uses a different standard. Um, to pass a law, you need a majority of the um, of the voting members of parliament. But a vote of no confidence requires a majority of all members of parliament. So the standard is higher for a vote of no confidence than to actually pass a law. So even though he wasn't going to be able to pass the law, he's able to use this mechanism. And because there isn't a majority to actively overthrow the government, 
um, it, it kind of stands. It's kind so, of the Boris Johnson thing in the UK replaying a little bit, right? You, 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 oh, yeah. I, I wasn't aware that. that um, uh, so was Johnson uh, in a similar position where... Um, well, they, they, they could explain that. Yeah, they couldn't get rid of him because um, the 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 uh, the rules of the uh, the exact the the parliamentary session uh, prohibited uh, removing uh, the prime minister for the the period uh, of, uh, of a year. So you can only have one vote of no confidence in him per oh, okay. year. Uh, so it just it, they gave, they took their shot at it and and it didn't go any further. Right. Right. Yeah. So anyway, th this has all been a very disorganized way of laying out the 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 sort of um, the context of what's going on. So a couple months ago, um, Macron starts talking about, oh, we need to raise the retirement age two years because France currently has a retirement age of 62. Um, and it's the lowest retirement age in Europe, but it's not quite as as low as it that may sound because um in France, like in most other countries, if you wait to retire, you your your retirement goes up, right? So like you you get a you get an additional kind of bonus if you wait. So just like in the United States, you can retire at sixty two in the United States. Your pension will be lower. Um, but if you wait, you know, until sixty seven or seventy, your your pension goes up, right? right. So in France, it's the same thing. But most other European countries. Um, have been raising the the minimum age that you can retire at from right. 62 up to 64, 65, 67. Gotcha. Um, and France has not done this. Um, uh -huh. Macron had tried to do this um, back in, I think, 2019, but COVID hit. And so politically, it became unfeasible, I guess, for him to, to push this through. That was also before he became a lame duck, so he had mm -hmm. to worry about his reelection at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but now that he's been reelected, uh, he he seems to feel that um, this is his chance to become the French Thatcher yeah. or the French Reagan, right? The one who will break the back of the labor movement, the one who will finally kind of make France a normal neoliberal uh, economy. Gotcha. Um, and so a lot of this seems to be tied up in his in his own sort of personal pride. And McCall is uh, just to just to remind people, McCall is the guy who um, uh, married his uh, high school uh, <laughs> math teacher, yeah. um, who he fell in love with when he was fifteen, and she was, I think, twenty five years older than him. Wow. Um, so McCall is a weird guy, um, and this is obvious there's there's some kind of psychological dynamic at play here that that is causing him to to just sort of pretend that the mass protests and the and the strikes aren't happening um it's it's been interesting because if you if you watch the the french news which is usually very solidly neoliberal like it's a you know the the state news apparatus is um, kind of like the the BBC became in the UK, right? Like just a, a very solidly kind of centrist um, uh, neoliberal apparatus. And then the private channels, hmm. uh, which have been popping up, are all owned by by billionaires and are right wing effectively. Um, so if you watch the French news, um, it's been interesting to see how even this extremely sympathetic media apparatus has kind of turned on Macron just uh -huh. because the the popular popular anger is so extreme that yeah. um pe people just 
even these paid shills don't understand why he's doing this. And Jamal, just, just to a, jump yeah, in sure. there, uh, I mean, I've been seeing footage of uh, like uh, uh, insane amounts of garbage piled up in the streets because the you know garbage collection guys are are on yep. strike, and basically the you know the city grinds on. Um, obviously, people are outraged, but you know when you think about the type of disruption that's going to be in every in sort of people's everyday psychic experience of life in the city, mm -hmm. you know, like um, if, you know the fact that people are kind of uh, continuing to support these strikes and continuing to oppose Macron in the wake of all this is says a lot, no? Yeah, well, um, and, and that's a good point because the garbage collectors actually uh, stopped their strike. So mm -hmm. for, for several weeks, the trash was piling up in Paris. Right. Um, and they called off the strike, I think, because um, the workers who had been sort of voting to renew this strike every day um, had been anticipating that more sectors would join them on strike. And they began to feel that they were sort of pulling a disproportionate share of the of the weight. Um, and this is kind of, it, this goes to the deeper problem with the French Union's response to this, because um, in, in to a certain extent, this has been a great success for the unions. Um, they had been perceived as losing relevance slowly over the course of the last couple of decades. And this was, you know, for example, the last sort of major protest movement in France, the Gilets Jaunes, the right. Yellow Jackets. Famous protest, Yellow Jackets, yeah. The unions were not particularly involved in that. Um, that was sort of independent citizens, similar to the trucker protests in Canada or the farmer protests in the Netherlands. Um, those were independent citizens kind of going out and mobilizing themselves outside of the union channels. So the unions had kind of, their relevance had been called into question. Um, but this, they're kind of back on the scene. They're they're objectively, clearly leading the protest movement. Um, all of the unions. So France has um, has like five major union confederations. The two big ones are the kind of centrist CFDT and the more radical CGT. Um, and usually, uh, governments are able to get the CFDT to kind of sell out the rest of the labor movement and acquiesce to to you know sort of last time um the french retirement age was raised which was in the immediate after aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis the cfdt actually sold out the rest of the labor, labor movement and agreed to the to the raise but this time the cfdt has joined with the other unions in an, what's called an inter-syndical the an inter-union sort of coalition um and there there haven't been any public sort of gaps in this coalition all the unions are basically saying the same thing that we're never going to accept this we're going to keep we're going to keep striking until um uh until uh macron uh backs down the problem is that um the strikes that have been going on have been sort of uh every sector is um, voting on whether whether they want to 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 have strikes. So like the trash the trash men in Paris were voting to to have strikes. Various other oil refineries have been on strike. The electricians have been doing a lot of interesting stuff like cutting off the power to to politicians' houses and so forth. But there has not been from the unions a call for a general strike, right? And at this point, we're starting to see some dissatisfaction from the union rank and file that. Um, that the unions have not have not kind of moved to the next step because this has been the 11th day of intermittent mass mobilization 
So it's not 11 consecutive days. It's been, ele- it's been one day a week, basically, every week, right? Um, and so the, the initially, it was, there was a thought that this, you know, when, when Macron, the government, sees how, how this, how energy, popular energy is not flagging, they'll have to back down. But it's clear they're not backing down, right? They don't care if there's one day a week of mass disruption. They're just going to hold it out. Uh, hold the line because um, for psychological reasons, for I think um, also because Macron realizes if he backs down, he's he's dead in the water. He can't do anything else for the rest of his term. And also because if he can hold out, then then that kind of that will demobilize the labor movement going forward because people will say, well, what's the point? Like, there's no point. He's just going to ignore us. The the there's nothing we can do about it. Right. <laughs> So um, it, it, it has become clear that this strategy is not going to work. So the rank and file is now saying, OK, well, we need to, to get tougher, right? We need an actual general strike where the entire economy is shut down, not just one day a, a week, but every day until, until he backs down, right? And that would, that would make him back down. Like that, a general strike, there's no way he could... The, the employers, sort of the French equivalent of the Chamber of Commerce, is already kind of hinting that they're not really happy with with this labor, with this retirement age reform. That wasn't really one of their priorities. They don't see what the point of this is, um, because the the French employers don't want to have to hire more. They don't want to have to keep more old people hired because old people you have to pay them more, right? Like they have more seniority. Uh, you know, and and ev- basically everyone in France is is under a union contract. So you know, the older you are, the more you get paid, right? Companies don't want to keep these people on staff. They want to they want to get rid of them. But um, if you raise the retirement age, the companies feel like you know that that's actually not particularly good for the for the capitalists. That's class, very right? interesting. That's I did yeah. not know that. Yeah. So there there are internal divisions within the French capitalist class that that really make you wonder what is going on here. Um, uh-huh, and uh-huh. more can sort of the most convincing thing I've heard, um, besides sort of just the psychological element with Macron being kind of a freak, is um, the EU, that this is being done to meet some sort of EU um, uh, mandate, that um, the EU gave out a bunch of COVID (laughs) funds, and they extracted a commitment from France that there would be a retirement age reform as part of that. Um, but Macron can't say this in public because that would obviously cause a huge sort of public backlash against the the EU and the and the European project more generally. And the French the French capitalist class loves the EU and and views it as as a way of disciplining the French the French working class, um, which it is. So so that's that's one component here. Um, so anyway, the unions are coming under pressure from their membership. Um, the CGT, the the main radical union. Um, just had a leadership election, um, which was coincidentally scheduled long in advance to to happen. Um, I think it was last week. And the outgoing leadership um, of Philippe Martinez um, uh, had a preferred candidate who who they were pushing for really hard, but she lost um, the the union election. So now um, the more radical candidate didn't win, but a kind of compromise candidate between the the radical and and sort of more conciliatory wings of the CGT one. So it seems clear that the CGT membership uses use that as a as an opportunity to express its displeasure with the 
the current sort of strategy of of these intermittent strikes. Um, so we'll see. I, I I think that the the unions are in a difficult position because the CFDT, the more centrist union, doesn't is not going to want a general strike. But um, the current strategy isn't working. So, and if the the working class is so mobilized that I think it will be politically untenable for the unions to just kind of to to keep to to keep slowing the roll like this. So yeah, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. But it's been a it's been a really interesting um a uh, couple months. And I guess the last component of this is the political left, right? Because the labor left, the the unions are leading this, but the political left, um, which since the collapse of the Socialist Party, the the French Socialist Party became pesocified, right? Like it 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 had its it had its lunch eaten by Mélenchon's um, France Insoumise. Now it's now it's kind of like a, a junior um, coalition partner with with uh, so all of the four main French left parties united under a common coalition called the New uh, Popular Ecologic and Social Union, um, the NUPS. Um, and so the the Green Party, the Communist Party, and the Socialist Party are basically now the junior partners of France Soumise in this coalition. And the um, the since the collapse of the Socialist Party as a major political force, um, the the unions have not sort because the CFDT used to be kind of strongly linked to the Socialist Party, right? Um, the unions have not really reestablished any formal links to France Insoumise. Um, so the, the political left and the labor left are kind of working separately. They they don't really coordinate that much. They kind of criticize each other publicly, you know, occasionally. Um, and Philippe Martinez, the old boss of the CGT, the more radical union, was actually quite critical of Mélenchon and France Insoumise. He, he, would, he would go in the media and say that, you know, they're, they're sort of their behavior in parliament is unbecoming. He, you know, he he didn't like the fact that they tried to uh, they've tried to use obstructionist tactics to keep the the retirement age law from coming up to a vote. He would criticize them, and it seems like the rank and file are have kind of gotten sick of that and now right. want there to be more collaboration between the the political and the labor left. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the French political left has its own problems. Um, before this, you know, before the retirement age thing happened, the political left was kind of adrift. It was constantly dealing with internal like um, sexual harassment, like micro scandals and and just bickering. You know, there, there was no message discipline. It was it was obviously not really um, doing well. And this is kind of given them something to rally around. But the actual winner so far in the polling in terms of the political parties is the far right, because this is the far right sort of prior to this had been slowly consolidating its support base among the, the working class who'd kind of become dejected with the, with the left parties. And, you know, as we're seeing in a lot of countries, just kind of migrating slowly to the far right. But this has given Le Pen and the far right an opportunity to kind of a demonstrate their quote unquote, you know, economic populist bona fides, right? Because they've come out very strongly against the labor, the the retirement age uh, reform. So this is an opportunity for them to say we're not like 
the mainstream parties. We're not like the normal right or Macron. We we actually do differ on policy. Um, even though it's if if you look closely at their economic plans, it's it's kind of more complicated than that. They actually have a uh, a retirement age plan that lowers the re retirement age for manual laborers to 60 years, but raises the retirement age for um, uh, sort of intellectual workers, knowledge workers to 67 years. So they have a, a, an interesting sort of um, uh, a, a plan that that is part of their strategy of sort of dividing the working class among itself, right? Um, but anyway, so so they've been able to position themselves as economically populist, and they've also been able to take advantage of the left's propensity to behave like sort of um, whiny activists in the public eye. Um, the the Francis Humis and the other, mostly Francis Humis, has been doing things in parliament like, you know, being rowdy and, and, um, and, uh, chanting slogans during parliamentary, um, you know, sessions and stuff that um, the media has really sort of run with and and sort of um, uh, really run with this narrative that, oh, they're debasing political discourse, they're debasing the, the institutions, right? And this seems to have not really endeared the left to the population. Um, there has been a, a little bit of a... Um, of a genuine sort of popular exasperation with these kind of tactics and the far right has been able to say oh look at us like we show up in suits and ties we behave quote unquote responsibly in yeah. parliament like you can trust us we know what we're doing not like those you know the, uh, those, yeah those yeah radicals, that's a familiar right? enough story yeah right so the far right is now actually tied with the left in sort of polling um and if the presidential election were reheld today marine le pen would win apparently wow so it, it's been sort of it's it's been it's been a wild ride so far. We'll see how it turns out. But if assuming Macron doesn't back down, mm -hmm. assuming that he he holds the line and the strikers and the, the general strike is never called, there's never any actual mobilization that gets him to back down. It is very likely that the far right will win the presidency in a few years because they've they've become the primary party of opposition. Right? Uh, yes. And they're an effective vehicle f for right. the working class, essentially. Right. And so that, I mean, that's it, 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 it is what Macron has been saying he wants to prevent. It's what his, the liberals, the liberal centrists have been saying they want to prevent, but they're doing everything to, to bring that about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the, the left, you know, François Soumise is not as um, sort of, middle class captured as obviously the American left or Die Linke in Germany or Podemos in Spain there. It, it's not quite to that level, but um, it's still pretty, it's still pretty bad. And there, there is a lot of introspection in the French left about why this is and what we can do to fix it. But um, so far there, they haven't had as much success as they would like in winning back these um, working class voters. And there, there are a few politicians in Francis Soumise. Uh, Francois Ruffin is sort of the main one. He's an interesting guy. He's from a rural northern district. Um, he's a member of parliament. And he actually produced a documentary on the Gilets Jaunes protests, where initially Macron had been saying, oh, these are far-right, you know, quasi-fascist protesters. 
And so he actually went out with a friend of his and did a documentary and interviewed the protesters and sort of um, endeared himself to them. In nice. that way. So he's an interesting guy. He he it wouldn't surprise me if if he kind of rises in, in stature in the next couple of years. But very interesting. Yeah, Very so there you go. I don't know if if, if Look, there's that's any fantastic, Jamal. That, no, yeah. no, no, no. I I uh, I really appreciate you uh, helping us kick today's episode off. Um, for listeners uh, who are not uh, familiar with the show, uh, this is the Class Unity Transmissions podcast. You can find out more about Class Unity at classunity.org. And uh, in just a few moments, we're going to go into an interview that. Uh, I and uh, Stephanie Kay uh, carried out with Armand, uh, one of our class unity comrades, on the issue of gay particularity reconsidered. If you want to find that reading, you just go to the article section on classunity.org. Jamal, thanks again for joining us. I hope we can uh, link up with you again in a few weeks' time and get any uh, an update on the uh, situation in France. Yeah, for sure. It's um... oh, and and one more thing. I don't know if if you might want to. You splice it in, but so one one interesting feature of the current protest wave in France is that it is not limited to just Paris and major metros. It is actually spread significantly to small towns. Um, my my mom, you know, now lives in France, and so I've been sort of asking her about what's been going on, and she's in a in a town of six thousand people, and you know there are hundreds of people in the streets you know a significant proportion of the population of this town is in the streets protesting you know on every on every one of the designated days and apparently this is not unusual it's happening all around the country and in all these small towns so there there is something like a mass popular mobilization that um that could if the left plays its cards right you know sort of offer an avenue to kind of reconnect with uh, with a broader working class base outside of the major cities and the, the sort of middle class youth activists that have kind of become the left's ghetto um but they they need to they need to get their act together right right fantastic <laughs> so, fantastic yeah. okay uh thanks so much jamal we'll we'll, uh, we'll splice that in and uh, sure. we'll uh, take it from there this was good thanks very much Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Class Unity Transmissions. Uh, today, my co-host is Stephanie Kay, and we are joined by our guest, Armand, to discuss uh, his recent article, uh, uh, Gay Particularity, uh, which uh, came out a few weeks ago on the Class Unity website. So welcome to the show, Armand. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Good to have you here. Um just to sort of kick it off uh, here, and then I'll I'll pass the mic to Steph in a minute because uh, she's got all the good questions. Um, but just to to sort of get us going, um, I, I like this sort of early quote from your piece where you say, "In the late '80s and '90s, activist organizations such as ACT UP participated in civil disobedience actions against insurance rate increases and worked to expand Medicaid benefits to include AIDS treatment." In 1990. When Congress refused to release funds already earmarked for aid services, claiming that patients with other conditions were more deserving, ACT UP called for national health insurance. And I just that that struck me um, 
quite profoundly uh, when I think about sometimes some of the demands that uh, are made by particular identity particularist movements today, uh, the universality of that uh, claim really sort of stood out for me. So just to get us started today, I wanted to ask you a bit about this historical moment and what for you was it about the ACT UP era, if I can call it that, that made the gay rights movement at that time unique and special? So I think really, I guess the 90s were one of the last critical points where gay politics could have developed into a different trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ACT UP is mainly remembered now for a lot of like street theater and performative demonstrations as opposed to the things you just mentioned that mm. were in the article. But, you know, there were actually, you know, different political tendencies within it. Um, so there was, you know, one political tendency that saw AIDS as you know, a kind of aberration and wanted to deal with it by streamlining drug fuel by the FDA. Uh, But there were other political tendencies that, you know, saw the for-profit health system as the problem itself and even connected it to, you know, larger problems of housing. Obviously, if you're homeless and you don't have medical care, these issues are going to, you're going to deteriorate much more rapidly than if you are in a different situation. And I think that later political tendency um, had a lot more potential to coalesce into a broader movement for healthcare that unfortunately never really fully materialized. Okay, so um, I'm really interested in what you guys wrote and I'll bring it up at a different point too for a different reason. but you talked about the trajectory uh, or, or I guess the shift away from um, like prioritizing healthcare and employment and uh, focusing on like things like gay marriage and uh, other civil liberty issues, um, like the right to serve, that kind of thing. You actually, so let me read what you guys write. Um, you say the push for gay marriage effectively diverted financial resources and political energy away from organizations, prioritizing healthcare and employment. In this light, the shift toward gay marriage can be viewed as a conservative churn in queer politics. And this was probably, I imagine, like post-1992, kind of, mm-hmm. um, I think after AIDS, like gay rights movement um, with the focus on AIDS had... Um, accumulated a a good deal of success and um in response to i think this moral majority kind of uh, moment in america where there are a lot of people who were using gays as like a a scapegoat um especially uh as clinton came into office um so i i guess my question though is that i had my mom read this article and she is a bit of an MS, MSNBC watching lib. Um, and she took issue with uh, the characterization of the shift towards gay marriage as conservative um, or a conservative turn in queer politics. Can you say a little more about your choice of words? Um, I'm old enough to remember 
the time when most gay men would say publicly <laughs> that they didn't care about the right to marry or to serve in the military. So I get it. For me, in addition to moving away from specific policy demands, um, like that we're more materialist, more leftist, and to marriage, that 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 seems obviously more conservative. But also, I think it was a move towards respectability politics. But I just want to hear what your thoughts are on why it was a conservative churn. Yeah. So I think actually when initially writing the article, it kind of came to mind because um, one of my friends was like, I essentially said something that I felt like, I feel like gay marriage occupies this weird, like, position in this in liberal mythos as like proof of concept of not only like how identity politics actually works and also that of like oh we're seeing we're progressing towards whatever you know a better and better society and I'm but I feel like if you closely examine it you might not come to the same conclusion because you also have to consider what other possibilities it foreclosed. I mean, you know, for one, it's just empirically true that the primary financial beneficiaries of gay marriage were wealthy and (laughs) were now able to pass on large sums of um, wealth without incurring an estate tax penalty, you know, which are basically inheritance over $5 million. Um, In the article, we talk about the Edith Windsor case, and it's kind of interesting to note that um, in when the New York Times covered the, the case, they talked about her tax bill, but they don't mention that her estate was $10 million. <laughs> Um, and I feel like that's a very key point of information that we have to keep in mind. Um, also, you know, um, there was also when, you know, when, as certain states passed gay marriage, that also in many states ended common law marriages and, um, also, um, an employer provided domestic partner benefits. So in some cases, it actually limited the ways that people could structure their relationships. Um, uh, yeah. Well, thanks for that, Armand. And that actually helps. It's a good segue into my next uh, question. Um, because I think about that a lot. I think about the big uh, civil right, civil uh, partnership versus marriage um, debate, I think, in the late 90s. And um, the hardline stance or demand was gay marriage, full full marriage rights. But I think a lot of par- partnerships, civil partnerships, uh, proposals would have given full rights. Um, so I'm not, I'm not really sure of the specifics, but one thing that came up for me when I was reading this um, is that uh, you talk, of course, about like marriage equality and what it offered, obviously it offered a way for a lot of uh, middle-class wealthy people to have the same benefits that, have the same spousal benefits that 
that their straight counterparts in the middle class um, would get either through their job or otherwise. Um, but it, marriage also is obviously allows people to make uh, decisions on the behalf of an incapacitated partner, visit them in the hospital. It um, includes certain like privacy rights or lack thereof that, so what do you have to say to like somebody who would say it's not just about these uh, middle class kind of benefits that you would get if you do have health insurance and retirement and an estate, um, but it's also about these other things. And then if you can maybe tie in the civil partnerships mm. arguments that people were making, if you if you remember a lot of that, mm. that would be cool. So I do want to say like my point wasn't to necessarily say that like gay marriage was bad or like something like that but to show how it you know narrowed the scope of politics like when we accept things like well you need a marriage to be on your partner's health insurance or like to be their caretaker you know what other types of politics are we not considering like you know why do we allocate healthcare in this way? Why do we structure care in this way? I was um, I was actually reading through some like recent reforms in Cuba about family rights, and it like really wasn't achieved as a benefit to some minority group. But just asking, you know, people how they want to legally structure their families and relationships. And, you know, a lot of people actually have, you know, caretakers that wouldn't necessarily be recognized under marriage. So I just don't think that it is the only way to address the problem. And I don't think it's actually even a full answer to it. <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense. And thanks for thanks for explaining that. Um, interesting side note, when that Cuba families legislation passed, I was talking to people like who are, you know, on the left here in DC. And they were like, I think they were hyping it because of, I don't know, different rights it gave to like, I guess, gay families. But then as you point out, it's not just, it wasn't, it was a very much of a, a universal uh, piece of legislation, mm -hmm. which I think shows where our minds are, <laughs> where we're at for the <laughs> most part in the left in America. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a couple of questions for you now, Armand, if you don't mind. Uh, mm -hmm. Kind of wanted to go into some of these comments you're making concerning the emergence of queer identity and your um, argument that we have to position the emergence of, you know, in scare quotes, queer identity within a sort of historical materialist framework, uh, which, as you say, um, is not to say that human societies haven't always had homosexual behavior. Um, you know, that, that seems to be a trans-historical phenomena. But the identification with queerness emerged only recently. And I think you're you're basically saying indeed that it could only emerge under very unique yeah. socioeconomic conditions of possibility. And I just wondered, you know, obviously that runs against the grain of what maybe a lot of more like postmodern theory folks would say, you know, people like Judith Butler, you know, they're going to see politics always and everywhere as an identity question, as a thought question. And so for them, in a sense, like 
the normative stakes of that are interesting because that's, I guess this is why I'm asking you the question, because for them, the the, the normative significance of, of connecting politics to thought and to identity, it means that, you know, because ideas change only slowly, therefore politics is slow. You know, it becomes this meticulous, painstaking, mm-hmm. slow process of changing hearts and minds. Uh, but um, I think you're approaching it from a different point of view. Yeah. So like you said, you know, homosexual behavior, it's pretty trans historical, um, you know, and obviously everyone's pretty aware of like antiquity. And um, I, though, I guess that's more of like a pederast system, <laughs> um, though I know like there are figures like, you know, Alexander the Great, who some suspect that his friend Hephaestion, that they were lovers, but, you know, nobody would have considered him gay or Mm. different in some way because he was still fulfilling, you know, the same social roles that, um, um, that would be expected. There wasn't, you know, they didn't see this kind of separation. Um, I see Steph has a question. I just have to speak up on behalf of my um, my Hellenic <laughs> ancestors. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of pedestry, but there was a lot of straight up uh, gay <laughs> love um, and affection. And I, I think that like uh, pedestry that we're thinking about too is like guys and their like 19 and then like the yeah, other yeah. guy was like 28 it wasn't like it, you know it yeah, was, i just want so to like get it yeah. on the record <laughs> yeah like <laughs> yeah like the sacred band of thieves right where like yeah had, yeah like, i think that yeah i think yeah, there's a lot of examples were of non-pederistic like, <laughs> yeah i think they were like because you would have like you would basically be like apprenticed to like an older warrior so it's like a teen and like late twenties kind of yeah. pairing, and um, and then afterward, you know, you would retire from the military and get married. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think that rules were as rigid as we sometimes like to. Yeah, as Thank as you, you sometimes hear. So just Thank, yeah. Thank you for defending your ancestors. <laughs> yes, <laughs> always. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I lost where I was. But yeah, so I guess I guess back to this idea oh, of yeah, like yeah, w- yeah. when it was historically and under what specific oh, yeah. historical conditions that oh, you okay. had the emergence of queer identification. Yeah. So I'm drawing on John D. Emilio um and his work on the subject, but um Essentially, he, the way he conceives of it is that, you know, under feudal relations, um, the way production worked was that it was like, it was all, for the most part, consumed within certain, like, familial units and kinship units. So, you know, you were producing items for subsistence, right? And so you were um, interdependent on these other family members, right? But then 
you know, as industrial production comes about, right, you're still independent on like society, but not necessarily on, you know, familiar, you know, on family units as much. And so that did create, you know, wage labor did create a certain amount of freedom per se to, you know, pursue other desires um, that, you know, may or, you know, that you may or may not have had. Um, And also, you know, just as a matter of, you know, geographic location, you know, people were brought into urban centers. And so there were also more potential opportunities for, um, you know, those pursuits to take place. Um, So it was only in this context that you could have this sort of new social role come about and be uh, and be conceptualized as something different if that makes sense that was a great answer um so i wanted to uh follow up with you and and actually switch away from your article uh for a moment and um ask you about an article that I noticed a couple of years ago from Roger Lancaster um, in Jacobin, his piece, Identity Politics Can Only Get Us So Far. And I found it provocative. So I I wanted to maybe like just read a little quote from it and, uh, and see what you thought, because uh, it seems to me there's a connection between the two uh, arguments. So um, here goes, bear with me here a minute. <laughs> um, Roger Lancaster says, Surveying his research on the early history of gay liberation, Henry Abelove argues that today, blinkered by post-Stonewall preconceptions, we fundamentally misunderstand the relationship early gay activists had to identity. And this is quoting here, I think, from, from Abelove. I find little to suggest that the early liberationists saw coming out as the result of a truth-seeking journey deep into the supposed interior self. They thought of it rather as a release from quite deliberately assumed reticence. That is, they considered, and this is back to Roger Lancaster now, they considered publicly identifying as gay as an indispensable means, in scare quotes, um, for building a political movement, a gentle and persistent weaponization of the individual in homosexuals' collective struggles. Among other things, this means that the liberationists generally took a dialectical approach to sexual categories. From the start, they maintained that labels like heterosexual and homosexual would be cast aside after liberation. Um, so I find that interesting because it sort of strikes me that there's something very Marxist about that approach, right? That that sort of strategic orienta- orientation towards building a subject that you know is going to be temporary, right, or just just historically transitional. Marx, of course, famously uh, uh, argued that the proletariat wants to destroy the very conditions of of its own possibility, right? Um, By ending capitalism, the proletariat will, of course, no longer exist. So this is a subject that you want to generate and grow out of the working class, make it believe in itself, but only make it believe in itself for a strategic purpose. So this means it's not an essential category. It's not essentialized. 
in the way that we speak of some identity forms of identity politics today. But I, I suppose the question here is, is there a pre-Stonewall version, to use uh, Ava Love's uh, um, a description, is there a pre-Stonewall version of identity politics that is more attuned to these sort of Marxist-style strategic questions? I do think that, like, reading... I did look through the Roger Lancaster article. Um, also, he also wrote a book called Sex Panic that I was actually interested in reading because mm. I think it might have some stuff to do with current, um, like, the current kind of, like, groomer discourse that we see on Twitter. Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so... Yeah, so I do think it's, I do, I do really like the part of that, like, the whole point was so that we could eventually get rid of all these particularist understandings of ourselves, Yeah, right? Because we'll have achieved this, you know, thing together. Um, and, you know... I also have, you know, d seen some reading of like, um, you know, earlier activists. And when they talk about what they consider like gay liberation or queer liberation, they always conceive of it in terms of, you know, freedom and some sort of universal thing that, you know, not, that they would not be the only, you know, beneficiaries of, right? Um, and I feel like, unfortunately, now um, we're kind of stuck in this idea that, like, that you have this thing this sort of essential aspect of yourself and that, you know, we need to embrace this like, you know, thing that makes you different from everything else. And then, and then once you're different from everyone else, all of your problems then become culturally specific, right? The, you know, there's nothing linking you to everyone else. And, um, that I think is the central problem. <laughs> right on, right on. Yeah, yeah. Stephanie. Yeah, um, great answer, Armand. Uh, so um, I want to go over something. This is a quote that I've already uh, I've already repeated, but I'm just I'm just going to say it again because I think it's. Um, I think it's worth mentioning and it's something that really piqued my interest it, so in your article you say the push for gay marriage effectively diverted financial resources and political energy away from organizations prioritizing health care and employment so can we talk a little bit more about this the timeline for it and then map its trajectory onto what we call in CU the ascendancy of the <laughs> iron triangle. And um, if somebody wants to give a little intro on the iron triangle, that might be good too for listeners who aren't, who uh, aren't like super <laughs> knowledgeable. Yeah. Um, so I believe the iron triangle refers to the professional class 
academia and, you know, NGO sectors, right? Um, so I think it's probably easier to like demonstrate it with both. I can probably answer both questions at once just using the example here. I guess the best way to start with was, is with like the, um, was back with ACT UP. Um, so like I said, there were, you know, definitely a political tendency that was more concerned with like connecting, you know, the AIDS crisis to an issue of, you know, um, healthcare and housing. And a lot of them were involved in essentially mutual aid type actions to um, provide housing as well as care for, you know, people who were sick and weren't able <laughs> to, you know, um, you know, care for themselves in that condition. Um, now, basically, um, over time, as, you know, better um, a, you know, HIV cocktails were available, you know, this essentially from the standpoint of like more conservative elements became a solved problem, like, right, problem solved, you know. Um, and so, but these groups, you know, all still were around, but transitioned more from being political groups to just pure charities, really. Um, you know, they're not really membership organizations at all. They don't even profe profess to be, right? Um, so, you know, when, so as their, you know, focus, you know, shifted more from AIDS activism to just, you know, providing charity, it then became very important, you know, to find donors and who are those donors, right? It's, you know, extremely wealthy people or other, you know, professional class people. And often these charities are mainly staffed by, you know, professional class people. Um, and um, this kind of, you know, it kind of ceases to be, you know, a, you know, a political organization as such, and then becomes more based in altruism as opposed to, um, you know, some sort of like binding material interest. And also incidentally, um, you know, in, for the chapters that were in smaller states engaged in this charity work, um, you know, now that they're, when they became, you know, to, you know, as they become like super dependent on donors in the 2000s, when like marriage becomes more of a political priority, they start losing donors to groups like mm -hmm. the HRC that are more um, focused on that issue. Um, Ryan Conrad, um, from Against Equality talks about this in Connecticut in particular, how all these charity organizations end up closing down because they can't 
find the donors anymore because all of this money is going towards, you know, gay marriage legal fights. Um, I hope that fully answered the question. (laughs) Yeah, I think it covered it. I mean, there's also, I think, just in general, um, a like a a rise as our old institutions um, that leftist movements used to be kind of anchored to nestled in wither away there's also a rise in the iron triangle um funding and activity in general um but that's definitely something we could get into in a different in a different interview um but yeah you answered that really well and i i just wanted to we can cut this um if necessary but i was reading this book called has the gay movement failed and it's from I think 2021. Um, yes. No. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> um, and it's um, you know, I'm not really sure, like 100 sure about the. I, I mean, the author I think is a little bit of a red lip, but he he talks about like the, this moment, um, and he actually has an interesting quote. Uh, I guess the, not this moment, but the this. Uh, uh, I guess shift. Um, he talks about a sea change in the 1990s. Um, and he says, quote, the human rights campaign fund, HRC, I think, and the fellowship of gay metropolitan community churches together moved to the forefront of the movement and saw to it that the fourth national march for gay rights in 2000 focused on the centrist themes of faith and family. Before he, uh, before he, so I think that that kind of actually goes back to what we were talking about earlier, this, uh, this shift to focus on gay marriage, uh, being able to serve in the military and how it tied in with respectability politics and also the, I guess, the, the, the democratic party's agenda at large, right? Like, um, at the time, especially as they were moving, had moved to the the right or to the center, and were um, very much about presenting this uh, image of being um, very much for the middle class, and you, you know, uh, not much different than Republicans. Um, any, anyway, <laughs> moving on, but also related, uh, you talk about. Um, something that I think that we see a lot of on the left, uh, which is identitarian aesthetic rebellion. And I quote, queer politics remains trapped in a cycle of identitarian aesthetic rebellion and elite dependency. So uh, that that's from your article, elite dependency, I think of, of course refers to um, the dependency on these iron triangle participants, whether they be volunteers, whether they be donors or whether they be strategists or policy directors. Um, can we talk more about the aesthetic rebellion part and how it manifests? <laughs> because I, I think a lot of things will come up, but for me, one thing that comes up is that HRC used to be considered considered to be very conservative uh, as a gay rights org. I, I think, I mean, I, you could probably come up with better examples than I can, but I just remember they were like, uh, they definitely, I think, had a pretty strong anti-trans stance. And they also were just always down to, uh, they, they were always like very 
amenable to any kind of religious exemptions to any campaign or any law legislation that was being fought for uh, to protect real rights. Um, They they just, yeah, very, very conservative. But now um, they, they, they're, well, they're very important. They're very well-funded, but their big focus seems to be on trans rights. Now, if you go to their website, they have guides on how to use neo-pronouns and it's all about, about uh, trans uh, legislation, administrative um, campaign. Yeah, I guess trans rights campaigns on a legislative, legislative as as well as administrative level. Um, but what do you think about uh, what do you think about that? And do you have any other examples? I guess of this aesthetic rebellion that we <laughs> see so much of on the left. Yeah. So. I think there's, like, this idea that, or I shouldn't say idea, but this, I guess, tendency that if we have these, if we add up all these small transgressions, it will somehow add up into something potentially radical, right? But... I don't think that it actually works like that. And what, you know, really, I would say, you know, if you talk to, you know, even average people for a little while about, you know, you know, the way society could be better or how their workplace could be better, they often come up with like, much more radical (laughs) ideas, I find, than, um, you know, various, you know, etiquette criteria on talking about how to refer to people, how to, you know, um, respect, uh, you know, whatever sort of, um, you know, whatever you know, the new shiny object of the day is, <laughs> but, um, but oftentimes, and I also think there's this idea that like, if we can get the language right and everyone, you know, then that will somehow reflect some sort of like material change. And I don't think the two are really connected whatsoever. And we're also, you know, it's never going to be the case that everyone is going to have that level of ideological conformity on these sorts of things, particularly when, you know, when it's couched in like this very particularist, um, you know, rapping where people don't see how any of it is connected to their own lives. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. Um, definitely brings back some of the stuff we read in the <laughs> Lancaster article about like yeah. just immutable identity. Um, I, I have, a, I guess, a, a question that might begin to move us towards some sort of closure. 
uh, here, uh, although there may be like a couple of different questions in it. I, I think I think where I'm going to end up is uh, asking you, you know, what can the left be doing better here? And specifically, what can we, the more Marxist and historically materialist, um, excuse me, historical materialist left, uh, be doing better uh, to to leverage the kind of arguments that you're making? But but before I get to that, let me back up and, and, and give you the setup here. So towards the end of the piece, you say identity is a regression uh, from the politics of freedom the left championed a century ago. The left has historically defended the decriminalization. The left has historically defended the decriminalization of sodomy and cross-dressing, not from the position that queers or homosexuals were some essentialized type of person, but the expansion of freedom of the human subject to express their own desires, whether they be acquired or innate. And this struck me as important. Uh, and I, 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 I couldn't help but think about how some people on the left today, for example, look at things like the Canadian trucker convoy as being somewhat fascist or reactionary without equally stopping to notice, for example, the, um, the, 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 the complications of that movement. And I know we're, I know we're kind of far away from the, 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 the question of gay particularity here, but I think we're also maybe, um, on the terrain of how the left itself chooses its particularities that it wants to focus on. Right. I mean, the Canadian trucker convoy had all different kinds of particularities within it. It was not, it was not a monolithic block. It was, it was quite nuanced. And, um, you know, it even had people from indigenous communities in there, um, making various points. So like, I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying to get on, into the whole like COVID debate, but I'm, I'm simply, I suppose, trying to ask, you know, um, you know, if, if I'm correct, and if that is an example of how socialist critics, um, of the right, uh, kind of failed in their own, um, duty to uphold that very notion of freedom that you're talking about in your quote. Um, how, how can we try to move back towards that as a strategic posture? Mm. <laughs> I think if I knew the answer to that, that probably, we would be right. much better off. But yes, good I answer. do want to say, <laughs> I do want to say, I still believe in the mass party. And okay. I think we need to communicate a much more minimal, but potent program, emphasizing employment, housing, freedom from debt, freedom from poverty due to sickness or old age or any reason really. And also how people don't deserve these things out of altruism because they've already done the work to produce society and they don't have these things because a small minority of people live in extreme wealth. Um, I think that often like people think that socialism is going to you know, take away their freedom and we're all gonna be treated like ants, but that's how we live now under capitalism. <laughs> is, you know, we're supposedly yep. <laughs> free, 
were supposedly free, except for the 40, 50, 60 plus hours a week we work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because once you enter the workplace, you're you're in, you enter into the a different a very different domain, as as many people would note. Like you 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 enter into a a, a, a rather authoritarian domain. Uh, you you don't get a vote mm-hmm. on uh, on how your workplace functions. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I think this is just I, I brought up the the Canadian trucker protest because I was listening to. Doug Lane's show the other day, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's uh, oh yeah, yeah, and Ashley Frawley, and right? Ashley Frawley, <laughs> and, they, and they were talking about this this particular issue, and I was struck by it that you know the that our our demand isn't just a demand for um, some uh, quantitative sum of wage that we feel the working class has been disenfranchised from or had has had has yeah. had expropriated from it. Um, but uh, in fact, we have uh, a demand for a substantively different type of life, right? Mm-hmm. A, a a life where we are unencumbered from the very logic of the capitalist market itself. So um, that uh, isn't going to be satisfied. I mean, I think sometimes the materialist left is misunderstood as... Um, as as sort of making only these kinds of like uh, reductionist demands for more pay or something like this, but it's it's it is of course much more than that. We we with Marx, I think, aspire to um, you know rediscover humanity on the other side of this thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to chime in, and we can cut this out. But you guys cite in, in your article. Um, a really good article by David Faze and Platypus. Yeah, I love that article. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask a question about this particular quote, but I'm just going to read the quote because I think it pertains to what we're talking about. Sex, sexual emancipation conceived of in the Enlightenment era challenged the natural basis of gender and nature of sexual identity fixed to procreation within the traditional family structures. Marx saw that this challenge to the ideas of men and women indicated, quote, how far man's natural behavior had become human and how far his human essence has become a natural essence for him, how far his human nature has become nature for him. In this way, sexual emancipation was understood within the context of the development of man's transformation of nature and thereby of himself, of human nature, toward the end of human freedom the development quote the development of all human powers as the end in itself not as measured on a predetermined yardstick so um i just think that's worth pointing out as um i think any one of us could be called class reductionists uh which means would mean that we only focus on economic issues Mm -hmm. and only don't care about any other form of emancipation or uh how being emancipated from capitalism will lead to the emancipation um, of so many uh, different areas of life. Uh, sorry, that was a little bit, yeah, yeah. a little incoherent, but um, <laughs> I wanted to read that. No, it was great. I mean, I actually really love that quote too. And um, this is kind of a joke, but it also means that um 
you know, those people on the right on Twitter are correct. Modernity is making you gay, but it's not the, (laughs) (laughs) it's not the, um, it's probably not the, uh, what is the thing that they're obsessed with? Um, lowering testosterone or whatever. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the Alex, Alex Jones, uh, the gay frog or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so, definitely something John D'Amelio talks about quite quite a bit. He has this great Jacobin article mm-hmm. and he does an interview, did an interview with Megan Day, I think, back oh, in yeah. 2020. And mm-hmm. he talks oh, all, I, yeah. I didn't see that. Okay. Yeah, he talks about his, the, the, the the theory that you that you've cited which i think is a pretty yeah um, it's a pretty valid one and you know i don't know if you remember this armand you're a little bit younger than me um quite a bit younger than me actually but like in the i would say mid 90s through until recently the like mainstream gay rights movement was obsessed with talking about um homosexuality as being inborn and really like yeah. just uh very very fixated on being able to prove that it was inborn it was genetic and that like that really has fallen away and i don't know if it has to do with just uh more (laughs) i'm not so sure it's completely fallen away like right really had like i mean we had lady gaga born this way right i mean that was like what 20 i mean well i guess that was 10 years ago now i guess i'm (laughs) but um (laughs) So I'm not so sure that it's completely gone away. Um, it, well, it's, you know, it's interesting because there's so much of this uh, increasing, like, uh, focus on, like, a script of identity, what that means, how, you know, somebody who's trans, non-binary, gay is different than, like, everyone else. But um, sexuality seems to be viewed by y- younger people um, as in increasingly um transmutable mm, that's an interesting you know, take. well we often talk uh because yeah. you know you and i are buddies <laughs> we often talk about asexuals demisexuals oh, and how oh, yeah yeah these sexual yeah. minorities don't necessarily asexuals don't necessarily not have sex they just don't but somehow they're different you know they're yeah but they don't not have sex like that's just always the Some- the disclaimer that's being made. Yeah, I yeah, I teach I um I basically teach like a like a you know, college age activity group and I don't know, maybe I am just getting old and like they do have like um uh like I know one of the people he was saying that he's attracted to men but is asexual and I was like so those things contradict each other. I don't understand what this means. Like, like. I, I am being told, but I, everyone, yeah, everyone who knows what asexual is and then wants yeah. the asexual color or whatever to be on the LGBTQIA plus flag, um, yeah. that no, it doesn't mean that you are not attracted to people. It doesn't mean you don't have sex with people, but it is somehow a unique gender identity identity or sexual identity but yeah so i think that increasingly we hear about youth talk about these descriptive identities that they've assigned themselves in a a very um transcendent transmutable way 
Um, and, but so it's, it's just an interesting, I think, contradict or tension that, um, will continue mm. to surface. Yeah. I between mean, the, the, the older, you know, born this way types. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah. That's an interesting. Oh, I did want to mention one thing. This is kind of random, but Dean was telling me about this the co-author of the article. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how um, apparently he saw like, um, there's this, I guess a political action committee called the Victory Fund, which raises money for um, LG, you know, LGBT <laughs> candidates running for office. And um, its major funder was Chevron right and yeah. so like you know obviously they have the um at the you know at this like super fancy dinner they have like you know the poster you know they have the things up of of the chevron logo everywhere and apparently um chevron's like new marketing slogan is the human energy company and my first reaction to it was like well, actually, yeah, that's correct. Because, like, you know, all profit is derived from, you know, living labor. So, yeah. You it, 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 it gives you these visions of, like, the Matrix and all these bodies tied up into, like, a giant battery fueling some kind of system. You know, yeah. human energy. <laughs> yeah. This, it's, this, uh, this yeah, horrible yeah, capitalist like vampire squid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're... Um. I just for uh, shits and giggles, we can cut this out. Wanted to read um, the HRC has like a business council. I wanted to read some of the, you know, representatives <laughs> or I guess officers uh, who belong yeah. to the council um, and what businesses they work for. We have somebody from Capital One, um, Northern yeah. Trust Corp, United Healthcare. Coquel, which sounds a little sinister. Corning yeah. Incorporated, yeah. Hewlett Packard Enterprise, Zimmer Biomet, GE, Diversity Inc., Jackson, <laughs> Jackson Lewis PC, which I uh, I don't want to get in trouble. Uh, they may be like do employment law. They might not. I don't know. <laughs> um, AT and T, Nike. And uh, Wit Tech Communications Inc. Mm. Just a <laughs> yeah, but we can cut that yeah. out. <laughs> we don't have to. It's we can talk. We can keep it. In uh, it. It's uh, you know we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you want to talk about, Armand? Because you know we. I I, I, know, I I have one oh. maybe like kind of last question, which is like, do you see the the sort of uh, arc of the discourse shifting within the day? the gay community now or, or queer community now, or is it, are there many people well, out there speaking the way you do? Hmm. So I don't want to like operate as like, you know, speaking for, no, I'm not know. asking you to, I'm just asking yeah, you yeah, yourself, yeah. like what's your finger on the pulse. I'm not asking you to <laughs> be the official ambassador um, of any particular community. Yeah. Um, just as the author so, of this piece. Hmm. So I would say that 
I do think that like wokeness in general seems to be exhibiting a shelf life mm-hmm. and that people are getting a bit um you know are kind of seeing you know the are kind of see are kind of becoming more skeptical that this is really some sort of like radical politics, particularly, you know, with like say that like CIA commercial that was like super, you know, mm, yeah, intersectional. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so I think that, and there's actually been like a lot of particularly gay male conservatives as of late um, that, you know, um, though I guess that's really not super new, but um, um, so I guess I, I do think there is, I do think we are becoming a bit more skeptical of like these identity claims but I'm not sure that that energy necessarily will go towards um, a more materialist perspective per se, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. These. The. I, I think. I think to echo your earlier point. I mean the. Uh, the conditions of possibility will themselves need to be different, right? And they will bring about different forms of consciousness, regardless of whether we want them to or not, right? I mean, they will yeah. shift who we are and, and how we how we think. So I, uh, I think there's certainly some some mm-hmm. some some merit to to uh, the idea that uh, to a certain extent we have to be dialectical in our approach. And I think that's mm-hmm. what you advocate in your piece. And I think part of being a dialectical thinker is recognizing that, you know, we can, we can nudge, we can change, we can, and we should be activists for our cause. Uh, there's, there's not, it's not to say that our agency makes no difference, but it is to say that ultimately, um, you know, if, if we, if we don't change the consciousness, the consciousness will change eventually just through changing circumstances. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, these things are not I- immutable and eternal forever. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do want to say, um, I do want to say, I think that like there's also been a lot of, um, you know, I think I mentioned it earlier of like, um, on the right with like a rise in like groomer discourse. Yes, and. And when the when the piece was written, um, there was also the big freak out that like gay marriage was, you know, gonna be possibly overturned, which I was pretty skeptical of and actually wish I had been a bit more explicit about that in the piece. Okay. But um, but I think like actually, I think if anything happens, I think it's going to be more along the lines of like the child sex panics that happened also in the Mm nineties of mm -hmm, where like, mm -hmm. it's primarily going to be, you know, 
teachers and childcare workers who are, you know, possibly fired or like put on trial for dubious things. And I think that needs to be addressed as, you know, a labor issue that teachers shouldn't be fired without cause, right? <laughs> you know, and yeah. yeah, so I think that will be, and I, um, I think that will actually be probably where we'll be seeing a lot of activity going forward. I, I want to actually ask about that, Armand, not to drag this out <laughs> for a super long time, but um, when they don't gay, say gay think happened, um, we saw mm. like a lot of like hysteria on the on the so-called left about how this was and, and, and you know amongst the, the the libs and like center libs about how this was about hatred right this was about mm-hmm. hate it was about wanting to hurt uh gay students and gay parents and gay teachers but i just saw it as uh, like a great way to defund public schools and to break up well, yeah, a lot of exactly. pressure on teachers unions so what can unions do like to, to actually engage with parents who are rightly concerned about their kids' education in, in public schools, what, what can they do to counteract this? Because this is a, this don't say gay thing is not what it was presented out as, which was by, by the right, which was like this, like, oh, we, we bring the issues to you, um, you know, like parents' committees, that kind of thing. It, it really is like, it's like a, what, like a state committee that i think that they have the they they review grievances and then they make decisions about yeah what will happen within a school district but um what can unions do to counteract that and to engage with parents any thoughts oh goodness (laughs) so um you know i wouldn't profess to have like expertise in how what unions should or should not do. But um I think that, you know, communicating that, you know, in democratic society, parents do have, you know, input into what curriculum should be. But it um but we also need to communicate that like you know, teachers or care workers of any sort, you know, shouldn't be put under the microscope of essentially these like bureaucratic, you know, witch hunts. Absolutely. <laughs> for just saying, for just, you know, for just like, you know, saying basic things like maybe like, you know, a gay teacher maybe referring to their partner offhandedly, just like, you know, a Christian teacher shouldn't be, you know, punished for referring to their church church picnic or something. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that what we'll see, I mean, uh, my expectation is that we won't see a lot of just working class parents putting forth these grievances. They will be Mm -hmm. conservative pillars of the community and, um, rifters who are being put up to it by the right essentially to put forward a grievance that then will go to this this uh whatever this body at the state level that reviews them um if if the school doesn't if the school district doesn't rectify 
whatever the, the mm. supposed issue is. So it very much is not like obviously a solution to parents. Cons- the, the issue of parents not being able to um, make sure their kids are getting the best education they need. It's, it's very, it was very much a bait and switch. Um, mm. But it's funny just, yeah. that just the left can talk about it as being anything other than just a, uh, a way to harm gay students and <laughs> yeah as opposed to that your schools that are being defunded and yes like, yes yeah, part of uh, like <laughs> what at this point like how many I mean segregate obviously there was a big push to defund public schools after uh the after supreme mm-hmm. court and segregation um in the south but like it's been going on forever mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah well, that seems like it might be a good place to wrap it up there, folks. I don't know about you. If there's uh, I think mm-hmm. nothing else to add, we could draw um, a line under it there. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Armand, any more uh, thought-provoking uh, pieces coming from your uh, direction uh, for our Class Unity website in the future? Any, any plans for, for further expansion of this project, research? Uh Actually, no, at the moment. <laughs> Sorry okay. to disappoint. But if I come up with any good ideas, I'll pitch them. So. Okay. okay. <laughs> I could also recommend. Um, Please but do. Yeah. If I, I would um, like uh, the article that uh, Steph mentioned earlier, um, uh, I think it's Trans Liberation, a Movement Whose Time Has Passed by David Faze. Okay. Um, also, um, oh, I can't remember the title. The John D'Amelio um, article I was referencing. And also, um, they have more of an anarchist um, uh, orientation, but um, Against Equality by Ryan Conrad and Yasmin Nair. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, those would probably be um great resources for I'll further put, reading i'll be sure those. there's links to all of that in the uh, in the show notes uh when we when we post this episode yeah great great uh, okay I, I want to say uh well i can say this off um yeah i'll say this off uh <laughs> off camp or whatever off the tape no worries all right all right gang okay. listen this was great um i i hope we'll get you back on the show again armand uh this was very oh, interesting <laughs> I, I i think we need more of these kinds of conversations so i appreciate it and thank you stephanie and uh look forward to seeing you all again soon yeah thanks armand thank you nick oh yeah it was fun thank you bye 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 bye